We're going through the book of Mark together. We're in Mark 9, going to look at the first 29 verses of the gospel of Mark. As you find Mark in your Bible, if you would stand with me, let's pray together, prepare our hearts uh, for the words. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. You're the giver, the giver of your only begotten son, your beloved. As we read your word this morning, we want to not come with calloused hearts, but soft hearts, ears to hear. That we would apply the things that we learn about you, the instruction that you have for our lives, that we would grow in awe of you. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Peter, James, and John get the invitation from Jesus to go upon a high mountain. On this mountain, Christ is transfigured. They see the glory of Christ in a greater way. Following this mountaintop experience, literally, they go into the valley. It's the up and then it's the down. In the valley, we discover an intense spiritual attack that's taking place. We find in our lives that the same is true. A lot of times we have an amazing experience with the Lord. God reveals himself to us in a greater way. Only for then the next thing is a spiritual attack, the up and the down. But what we'll discover is Christ is working in both locations. He's working in the mountain, but he's also working in the valleys of life as well. Verse 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So they're saying, some of this 12, before you die, you're going to see the kingdom of God present with power. That the kingdom of God is present with you and it's powerful. You would expect to see the glory of the kingdom more after you pass away. But Jesus is saying, you're going to see it in your lifetime before you die. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. It's going to be fulfilled in this moment of the transfiguration. They're going to see the power of God in a greater way. Jesus calls these three, Peter, James, and John, of his 12 disciples. He oftentimes spends more time with these three. Why does he do that? Because I think he's giving us a model for discipleship, a model for investment. We're to love all, minister to all, but you can only invest so much into so many people's lives. And Jesus invested into the 12, then he invested into the three, Peter, James, and John. The high mountain, most likely, we don't know for sure, is probably Mount Hermon. Jesus is doing his ministry at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level, 695 feet below sea level. Hard for us to relate to here in Colorado Springs. But then Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet. So that's a big elevation gain. It's almost 10,000 feet elevation gain. We think of the 14ers here in Colorado that are 14,000 feet. Go to hike one of those. I like hiking them if I can start above tree line. Sometimes there's roads that will take you above tree line. Then you begin your hike. You're going from like 12,000 feet to 14,000 feet. I mean, this, this is an amazing climb for them to go to this high mountain. The reason that we believe it's Mount Hermon is because that's the highest mountain in the location. And, and Jesus says they're going to a high mountain. No matter what the mountain is, it's important for us to get along with God in creation. 
Have you, have you done that? Have you taken advantage of the mountains that God has blessed us with? Go, go for a drive and allow Christ to speak to you through his creation. God would want us to have mountaintop experiences with him. Continuing on, and he was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosized. It means to change form. Really what is happening here is Christ is transfigured, is he's allowing for his glory to be seen and his glory to be revealed. I like the way Charles Spurgeon describes this. He says, for Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. So Christ is glorious. That's who he is. But as he came in his humanity, he chose to put on human flesh and hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory. And that though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. So, so in this moment, he allows his deity to be seen before Peter, James, and John. We get a physical description in verse 3. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on the earth can whiten them. This speaks of the majesty and the purity of Christ. We know in heaven there's going to be no physical sun because Jesus is the light that physically lights up heaven for all of eternity. This must have been mind-blowing for Peter, James, and John to see Christ in his glory in this moment. There's another time in John's life here on earth, the disciple John, where he sees the glory of Christ. It's in Revelation chapter 1. Would you turn with me there? Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 12 through verse 16. Revelation 1, verse 12. Another time of isolation for John. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. And he sees Christ, this vision of Christ on the Lord's day. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God. We know the lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia Minor. Jesus is in the midst of his seven churches. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Important to know Christ in his humanity. God in human flesh the carpenter, but also important to know Jesus in his glory. We sing, I can only imagine. We think about when we go to heaven and we can only imagine what it's going to be like to see Christ, but it's going to be mind-blowing to say the least. If you go on to read in Revelation chapter 1, John falls down as dead before this vision of Christ. This is the same John who had already seen Christ transfigured before him, but it was so overwhelming, he fell down on his face before the Lord. When we go to heaven, I think that we're going to be on our face before God, seeing the lamb who is slain for our sins. Let's go back to Mark 9, leaving Revelation chapter 1. There's a couple special guests, honored guests at the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. This speaks of eternal life. Though Moses and Elijah had died, they were alive. And now the Father sends them down to have this conversation with the Lord. Peter, James, and John get a glimpse into eternity. Why Moses and Elijah? It's interesting as we look at the circumstances around their death, Elijah in 2 Kings was caught up to be with the Lord, didn't die. So that's unique about Elijah. Also with Moses, when he died, he went to be alone with God on the mountain, passed away. Then Jude tells us, the book of Jude, that Michael, the angel, wrestled with Satan over his body. Satan wanted the body of Moses. We don't know why. But there was this battle, and then Michael speaks to Satan and says, the Lord rebuke you. So both Moses and Elijah have unique events around their death. Most believe that Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. There's going to be two witnesses that come in the book of Revelation during the tribulation, and most believe that it's Elijah and Moses, though we don't know for sure. But even more importantly than the circumstances around their death is what they represent. Moses represents the law. He gave the law to the children of Israel. God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to the children of Israel. The law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled it perfectly. He's the only one who's lived a perfect life. The law points us to our need for Jesus. Without the law, we wouldn't know that we're sinners. For the nation of Israel, they thought much of Moses as they should, but the message is clear here. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is pointing us to Jesus. So then who does Elijah represent? He represents all the prophets. He was a prophet of God, used greatly by the Lord. He represents Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. The law and the prophets, they point to Jesus Christ. Tells us here that they were talking. They were talking, but what were they talking about? Luke's gospel tells us what they were talking about. This is out of Luke chapter 9. It says, Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they were focused on the Mount of Calvary. They were talking about the crucifixion of Christ, his decease, what he was going to accomplish, the salvation for those that would believe. Isn't that incredible? So all of the Bible is moving somewhere. The Old Testament's moving somewhere, and it's moving to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All of Moses and the law, it all points to the crucifixion of Christ. Elijah and the prophets foretelling Christ crucified upon the cross, and then here shows up Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about this day where Christ will die upon the cross. But there's another voice in the conversation, verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. He's like, oh, let's just stay on the mountain. Let's stay in this place of glory. And let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. When we don't know what to say, it would be best to keep our mouths shut. Amen? Yeah? So here's Peter. He's afraid. He's freaking out. This is like blown his mind. Jesus is white as snow. Here comes Moses and Elijah. He's like, this is phenomenal. Let, let's, let's just stay here. Let's build a tabernacle. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
This idea of building a tabernacle comes from the Feast of Tabernacles to remember the wilderness wandering years where they lived in tents. So they would all camp out for a week in tents, in tabernacles. And this is where this concept comes for Peter. But notice how he addresses Jesus. He addresses him as teacher, not son of God. He's not focusing on the deity that's just been revealed. And he unintentionally puts all three on the same level. Well, let's build a tabernacle to Jesus, to Moses, and to Elijah. Well, this gets attention of the Father in heaven, and he speaks. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Why a cloud? Because it's rich in history. It's rich in Old Testament history. Oftentimes, God would send a cloud to represent his presence, wouldn't he? We find when the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, it was a cloud by day, representing God's presence with them. When the tabernacle was built, there was a a cloud, again, speaking of God's presence. Moses went to Mount Sinai, and a cloud was there. The people of God could see this cloud representing the presence of the Lord. Solomon dedicates the temple. God's presence is so thick, represented in a cloud, that they couldn't continue in serving. Ezekiel gets this amazing vision from God, and there's a cloud. We know when Christ ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, there was a cloud. He ascended into the cloud. When Christ returns, his second coming, Scripture tells us he's going to descend in the clouds. Probably not just a normal thunderstorm. Probably a cloud that is representing the presence of God. So put yourself in Peter, James, and John's shoes. First, they see Christ glorified. Then see Elijah and Moses. Then this cloud comes over the mountain, and they hear the voice of the Father. For some reason, I'm intrigued by what does the voice of the Father sound like? Not the Hollywood version, but what's the heavenly voice? sound of the voice of the Father. We'll find out. Peter and James and John get to hear it. What does the Father say? This is my boy right here. This is my beloved son. And there's an emphasis on the love that the Father has for the Son. The Father also spoke at the baptism of Christ, said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why do we repeat stuff when we communicate? To make sure we're heard and understood. The Father's repeating himself saying, World, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He is my beloved son. If we miss the value, the love the Father has for the son, we won't understand how much Jesus loves us. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world. He loved you. He loved me. He loved all humanity that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his beloved son. He's showing us how much he loves us by the value he places on the son and then his son being crucified for us. So know how much the father loves the son. And then the father says, make sure you listen to him. Make sure you hear him places Christ of the utmost authority. It'd be kind of tempting for Peter, James, and John to say, we get to talk to Jesus all the time. My whole life, I've been wanting to talk with Moses or Elijah. 
Mo, you had the Mo glow. What was that all about? Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Elijah, the chariots of fire. Oh, come on, let, let, let's, let's hear the, about that. This is my, my chance to get all of this information. But that's not the point to Moses and Elijah. It's to point to Jesus. And are we hearing from Christ? Of all of the voices clamoring to get our attention, there's a lot of voices, aren't there? Is it Christ that resonates the loudest? Be careful that you don't put a Moses or an Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. Maybe someone is invested in you. They've discipled you. They've mentored you. And all of a sudden you start looking to them in a similar way that you would look to Jesus Christ. No, don't do that. Be thankful for them. But their sinful humanity, there's only one who's God's son. There's one, only one who's completely pure and majestic. It's Jesus Christ. We hear him. Verse 8, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. This is the Father's plan all along. Moses and Elijah, back in heaven, and they only see Jesus. Now as they came down from the mountain, oh, we have to come down from the mountain. We have to leave our devotion time. We've got to leave our prayer time. We've got to leave this setting where we get to worship and be in the word. Isn't it so easy to be godly right now? I mean, maybe somebody's getting on your nerves right now because who knows, you know, like, I don't know why someone would get on your nerves in church, but maybe they're getting on your nerves in church a little bit, you know, but for the most part, it's pretty easy to be godly right now. But we have to leave the sanctuary, don't we? We have to go down, down the mountain. And God's the God of the mountain. He wants to take us to the mountaintop. He invites us to the mountaintop. But he also brings us down into the valley. And in the valley, we're going to find that there is a dispute happening with the nine disciples who were left and the scribes. A father who has a boy who's demon-possessed. The disciples who were left behind can't cast out the demon. Jesus walks right into a spiritual battle. And he is going to work in that place as well. I hate to remind you of this because we're having such a good time right now. But Monday morning is coming. After this four-day weekend, the holiday's going to end. We're going to have to go back to work. There's a mound of emails that are there, right? And we're dreading it. But God is the God of the valley. He's bringing us into that place. We should anticipate the up and, and the down and the spiritual resistance that comes from the enemy. And he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's an issue of timing. Don't share this, what you saw on the mount, until I've raised from the dead. Peter was faithful to do this. We have his letter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes of his account. Eyewitness to the glory of Christ and hearing the voice of the Father. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Can you imagine how confusing this is for the disciples? Here they've just seen the glory of Christ. Moses and Elijah just appear and disappear. And then Jesus saying, don't tell anybody till I rise from the dead. Well, what do you mean about rising from the dead? Well, that means you have to die in order to rise again. And they're trying to process this. And resurrection is a difficult concept to get and understand. I, I watched my son Wyatt this week try to process 
rising from the dead. He's four years old and he's been learning about Christ dying and rising from the dead and it really has his attention. And we had family come in for, for Thanksgiving. My, my in-laws were with us from Denver and then my wife's aunt flew in from, from Kansas City. And this summer, my wife's grandmother passed away, my son's great-grandma, great-grandma Jean. And we went to the funeral uh, at the end of June and it was a traditional funeral. There, were, there was a viewing the night before and then the service the next day, and then a graveside. So this was the first time that Wyatt had ever experienced death at all. He hadn't been around death at all. And, and so he got it in his heart. You know, great-grandma Jean, she passed away. She, she died. And so here comes his great-aunt, who is the daughter to, to Jean at our house for Thanksgiving, and he keeps calling her great-grandma. You know, he, he just, they look alike, and he's calling her great-grandma. And then at one point in the day, he looks at me, and he's all excited, and he goes, Dad. Great grandma Jean, she raised from the dead. She came back to life. <laughs> and he thought his great aunt was his, his great grandma. And I was just busting up, not at the moment, but I mean, just chuckling at, at, at his heart. I'm like, you know, son, that, that, was, that was your Aunt Kinnett. And he just looked at me and he goes, oh, and he got it. You know, he just registered. They're, they're not the, the same people. So to say the least, resurrection from the dead can be a difficult one to process. Verse 11, and they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So the teaching from the scribes was, before the restoration of all things, Elijah must come. That comes from Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, a prophecy of the coming of Elijah before the dreadful day of the Lord. That's why the scribes taught that. Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first, and, and restores all things. So Elijah will come, then there'll be the restoration of all things. That's why most people believe that Elijah is one of the two witnesses referred to in Revelation 11. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So many prophecies in the Old Testament about the suffering of the Messiah. Jesus is always trying to bring his disciples at this point back to the suffering. They were focused on Christ restoring all things, and Christ is saying, no, there's going to be suffering first. In verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as is written of him, referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. They did to him whatever they wanted to. They killed John the Baptist. They martyred John the Baptist. In verse 14, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. After a great experience with the Lord, we expect to walk into peace, don't we? You expect to come home from a retreat to your home being peaceful. You expect that you're going to go get your kids from children's ministry and they had a great time with the Lord. You had a great time with the Lord only to have a dispute in the car. No one can decide where to go to lunch. I'm tired of turkey leftovers, whatever the case may be. The attack is waiting. The dispute is waiting. Most oftentimes, we go from a great experience with the Lord to spiritual opposition. Verse 15, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. 
And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, and they could not cast it out. So here in this moment, Jesus now has this need that's presented to him. A father has his son who's demon-possessed. His disciples weren't able to cast out the demon. The attack's going to come. This is more than just the trials of life. Satan is attacking. Satan knows what a wonderful experience this was for Peter, James, and John. What do we do when we realize that we're in the midst of a spiritual attack? Ephesians 6 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Some of you this morning, you know that you're under a spiritual attack. You've had a wonderful time with the Lord. You're walking with the Lord, and here comes this resistance. How do we handle it? The book of James tells us, submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. God doesn't want us fleeing from Satan. He wants us drawing near to God and resisting the enemy. How do we do that? By standing strong in the armor of God. Ephesians 6 gives us the detailed description of the armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that we've been given spiritual weapons to pull down strongholds. We have to fight it from a spiritual perspective, using the word of God, using prayer, standing in faith, that that shield of faith. Do you know with the armor of God, there's no description for our back end. God doesn't say, okay, here's here's what you need to have to protect your backside. Because God doesn't want us turning our back to, to the enemy. He wants us facing that spiritual battle. Jesus faces that spiritual battle. He has authority over this, this spiritual realm. Maybe the message for you this morning is to engage in the spiritual battle. Go, oh yeah, this resonates. I realize now that I'm in a spiritual battle. I need to be resisting the enemy through prayer and standing in the word of God. Satan's going to attack your marriage, no doubt. He's going to attack our children. He's going to attack our church. We see with this boy who is demon-possessed, Satan's very clear in wanting to destroy this young man, and Satan hasn't changed. But greater is he who's in us than he that's in the world. Who's going to stand in the spiritual realm for your spouse? Who's going to stand in the spiritual realm for your children? Who's standing in the spiritual realm for, for this church? The list isn't very long, is it? You know, it's thankful for all the people that are investing in our kids' lives. The list is probably going to be pretty short for those that are faithfully praying for our children, those that are faithfully praying for, for our spouse. So, so Christ engages into this spiritual battle. Verse 19, And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. He's longing for greater faith in the life of his disciples. Saying, how long am I going to bear with you? You faithless generation. They brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. The demon is responding negatively to being in the presence of Jesus. And it's seen by the behavior of this boy. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. 
The demon's mission is clear, to destroy the child. Try to, try to throw the child into the fire, to, to drown him in the water. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Saying, if you can help, do you have the ability to help? Do you have the ability to cast out this demon? And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you believe, all things are are possible. Faith puts no limits upon God. That's a big statement. All things are possible for those who believe. Yet faith submits to the will of God. There's some who emphasize faith, but they don't accept the will of God. So our faith is to put no limits on God. God hears this situation, and I believe that you can work in this situation however you see fit, but I also trust your will in the midst of this. So some will err on the side of naming it and claiming it and saying, I'm going to impose my will upon the Lord, and that's not faith. But then there's others that emphasize the will of God, but yet They don't believe that God can work in this situation. They don't believe that God cares. They don't believe that God has compassion. So faith puts no limits upon God, but yet submits itself to his will. Verse 24 is worth underlining. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears. Two things are happening here. One is the brokenness of the father. Really, we've got a story of father and sons. The heavenly father with his son on the Mount of Transfiguration, this earthly father with his son being tormented by by this demon. He's broken and he cries out with tears. But also I think there was something that Jesus said that hit his heart about faith. And he realizes there's something lacking in my faith. Jesus just told me if I believe, all things are possible. And he's searching his heart. He's saying, do I really believe? Do I trust that Jesus can do this? goes on and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love the honesty that this father has with Jesus. So I do believe, but yet there's this part of me that doesn't believe. Would you help my unbelief? I don't know where we've picked this up, but a lot of times with Christ, we feel like we can't be completely honest. If we're completely honest, maybe it's a bit disrespectful to the Lord. Doesn't he already know? Don't do it in a disrespectful way. Don't be honest in a disrespectful way, but by all means, bear your heart with the Lord. Don't you love those relationships that are honest? I love having honest conversations with Amber, heart conversations with my kids, heart conversations with my friends, and and Jesus is the same way. Maybe it looks like this this morning. I'm going, you know what? Jesus, I do love your word, but it's sure been difficult to get into your word. Would you renew my desire for your word? God, I do love Christians. I do love the body of Christ, and they've impacted my heart so much, but I've also been hurt, and right now, I don't want to be around Christians at all. Would you help me, and would you give me a heart for my brothers and sisters in Christ again? That's honest. That's real. That's where we're at. Jesus, I know that you've called me to forgive and you've forgiven me so freely, but man, there's this person that just drives me nuts, that hurts me over and over again. Would you help me to forgive in a way that would honor and glorify you? May this birth in us more honest conversations with the Lord. When Jesus saw the people, 
came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. The spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The disciples couldn't cast out this demon, but Jesus could, and it wasn't even difficult. In the spiritual battle, we have to understand the authority of Christ. He has won the victory, past tense. We fight from the position of victory. He died, he rose again, he's defeated Satan. He has absolute power over this demonic realm. And when he'd come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Good question for them. Another honest conversation. They had cast out other demons. We know that from their short-term missions trip, but this one, they couldn't cast out. Why? Verse 29, so he said to him, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This kind. This means in the demonic realm, there are rank and file. There's principalities and powers. Ephesians 6 tells us that. There's demons that have greater authority and they're coming upon this demon and this kind this particular demon can only come out by prayer and fasting what was the other difficulty for the disciples they were faithless prayer and fasting produces faith in us as we draw close to the lord as we spend time with the lord and then as we come into the spiritual battle instead of being intimidated we know that christ has it and we trust that Christ is going to bring the victory. We trust the promise of God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You may be asking the question, what is fasting? I don't know what fasting is. This is going to be difficult with it being Thanksgiving weekend, but this is the reality of fasting, is you give up food to seek the Lord in prayer. However, we might be ready for it after we've eaten so much this week, right? But it's choosing to not eat, The Lord may put on your heart one meal or a day or several days. And the physical hunger is a reminder to pray. It's a great discipline for us because it teaches us that my flesh is not in charge. The spirit of God is in charge. My body is really good at reminding me that it's hungry and it's time to eat. And so that's a cue. That's a reminder. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to fast. And Isaiah 58 verse 6 tells us this about fasting. Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free? I got to tell you this morning, I don't understand all of this in the spiritual realm. There's a lot of this that I can't figure out. But I do know this, that there is power in prayer and fasting. There's something that happens in the spiritual realm where we choose to not eat and we begin to pray. And are you observing a great spiritual attack by the enemy, possibly on your marriage, with your kids, in relationships, in aspects of the body of Christ, in our community? Do you see an aspect where people are bound by wickedness inside of of Colorado Springs? we are then burdened to take those things to the Lord in prayer and fasting. 
and God promises to, to then work. Not that he's dependent upon our prayers, but he chooses to move through our prayers. We look at the book of Acts and prayer was so important. The church was birthed through prayer. As they were waiting upon the Lord in prayer, God empowered them through the Holy Spirit. Every page that you turn throughout the book of Acts is they're waiting upon God in prayer. Acts 13, the elders of the church are together fasting and praying. They're just in love with the Lord and ministering to the Lord. The Spirit speaks and says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. Paul's used by God to turn the world upside down. Where did they figure that out? It wasn't a plan. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't a church planting meeting. They were in love with Jesus, desperate to pray, desperate to worship. And as they're worshiping God, fasting and praying, they get the revelation from the Lord. It's Paul. It's Barnabas. Send them out. And then churches start popping up like nobody's business. It was a movement of prayer. When there's awakenings that have happened in our country, it's happened through prayer. So what are the takeaways from our text this morning? What do we learn from what we read here? Is the first is this, is hear him, hear Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than anyone who's ever lived. He's God's son, the beloved son. And we listen to him. We put him in the authority of our lives. Hear him. Also, we have an ominous conversation with the Lord. Hopefully many. Hopefully many. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Even as we close in this last worship song, where are you at? Where are you really at? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life? Talk it over with the Lord. He loves those honest conversations. Go for a walk with him. Take a walk. Talk with the Lord. Listen to him. Possibly go for a drive up into the mountains today. And then discover the power of prayer and fasting. How may God want to work through prayer and fasting? Here's my challenge to all of us. Is take it before the Lord and say, God, would you desire for me to pray and fast? Would you want me to make this part of my regular walk with you? Just like I spend time with the word. And he might say, yeah, Friday mornings. I want your breakfast on Friday morning where you're going to fast and pray. Yeah, maybe every quarter you're going to take a couple of days and, and pray, pray and fast. Be careful that we don't ever do this to be a show before men. We're to do this privately before the Lord. We're not to get around believers and like, oh, I feel so weak. I'm just, well, why? Well, I, I've been past fasting and praying for, for two days. Really? You gave up turkey because you love Jesus that much? Yeah. No, we don't do that. It's just between, between us and the Lord. And see God do a great work in people's lives to intercede in that way. So church, would you stand with me and let's pray these things in and ask God to work them into our lives. Father, we want to hear your voice of your love for your son. May we know how much you love your son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. We know it, but may it impact us afresh that you gave your loved son, your only begotten son for us upon the cross. 
And Jesus, we choose to hear you. We choose to put you at the authority of our lives. Above the voices of men and women, even godly men and women. Thank you that you allow us to be honest with you. Right now, just have an honest conversation with the Lord. You brought stuff with you this morning that is weighing you down. Talk it over with the Lord. It's the reality of the valley of your life, the difficulties that you face. Jesus, would you help our unbelief? God, would you take us deeper into prayer, deeper into fasting, not just for results, but for deeper relationship with you?